Week 15, the flow of repentance. Hmm. We're at a place in the story where Saul, King Saul, has finally stopped hunting David. We've been in this series for 15 weeks, and we have basically studied about 20 years worth of story. Saul's been hunting David, and he's finally stopped. David has left King Ashish, where he lived among the Philistines, which, if you weren't here, the Philistines were the enemy of Israel. They were the, 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 the enemy of God's people. And once he, he lived among the Philistines, he eventually came back and he had to rescue his family. He was going to fight with King Ashish because he thought maybe this is the time where King Saul is going to be taken down and maybe I'm supposed to be there. But when he tried to fight with the Philistines, if you remember last week, the Philistines would not have David fighting with them because they felt like David was too loyal to King Saul and too loyal as an Israelite to even uh, be in the same ranks as the Philistines. So they said, David can't fight with us. So when David goes back away from fighting this battle we see that he comes back to a town, Ziklag, where his family has been carried off by the enemy. Um, all the resources have been taken, and David um, has goes back and rescues them and destroys all the Amalekite army except for about 400 people. So tonight, I want to start out by putting this all into context. Y'all follow me so far? Good. In the same time frame, we have two armies moving toward two different places. We know from last week again that the Amalekite army went toward Ziklag, and that's why David had to end up going back there because they took all of David's stuff, including his family. And at the same time that the Amalekites moved toward Ziklag, the Philistines were making their way toward Israel, God's people led by King Saul. King Saul at one time had been appointed as the first king of God's people. Saul had been leading people about 40 years up to this point. In fact, we read about his reign in Acts chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. It says, And the people begged for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, who reigned for 40 years. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. There was one qualifier that God saw fit for a man to lead his people on behalf of God. It wasn't perfection. It wasn't getting everything right. It wasn't someone who did who never sinned. It was simply one qualifier. I want someone to lead my people who's going to do everything I ask them to do. Complete obedience. That was the qualifier. The reason David was needed was because Saul had proven that he was not going to do everything that God wanted him to do. He continually disobeyed God over and over, and it leads to a place where Saul, is, his life is about to end. All because 40 years back, after he was appointed because God saw something good in Saul, something came up in Saul where he said, I'm not going to obey everything God says. I've got my own way of doing things. And we live in a day where we're saved from our sin by the blood of Jesus but the blood of Jesus doesn't excuse you from the way God works. And I think so many times in the church, it's preached, you're saved by the blood of the Lamb and God forgives you of your sins. And it almost creates this mindset of, I can do whatever I want because God's going to have mercy on me. But tonight, I want to shift the way we think of mercy. Because mercy and grace does not excuse you to keep doing what you want to do. Mercy and grace buys you time to get back on track of what he calls you to do. The purpose never changes. 
God says, I want you to do everything I ask you to do. That's the qualifier of someone that's going to lead people. That's the qualifier of someone who I'm going to have favor on, who I'm going to have blessing on. The blood of Jesus does not give you a get-out-of-jail-free card from following the, the commands of God. It simply is. It, it, it gives you access to a grace and mercy that when you mess up, it's not the end-all, be-all, and your eternity is not changed in that moment because you were disobedient in one place. Does that make sense? So what we experience here has so much to do with what we access in eternity. The things we do here and are obedient to, the Bible says we store up treasures in heaven. And I've talked to you over the past few weeks that you don't just access those treasures in heaven when you get there, but you actually have access to pull them down here. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. If you're storing up treasures in heaven, you can experience that reality now because what is there can be here, but it's up to you to pull it down. The question is, are you living a life of such obedience that God sees you as favorable to allow you to experience what he has for you for eternity now? Saul was called to be obedient, and because of disobedience, we find this place where Saul is continually getting further and further away from God. The beautiful thing about us is we are in this place where God says that you, you may be saved from being separated from me, but you're not excused from these qualifications as someone I consider worthy of my blessing. Saul didn't get that. Jesus hadn't come. They were under law. And if Saul was not proven obedient, it didn't matter how much grace God had. The fact of the matter is, he lost his ability to be qualified as a leader of his people. I'm so thankful that even in a mess up, I'm not disqualified from leading. All because of the grace and mercy of God. The issue is, when we take that grace and mercy of being um, almost, well, covered in the blood. We, 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 we don't have to go through this thing where God all of a sudden turns his back on us and says, you no longer get to do it. He makes a way for us every single time. And the only qualification that Saul keeps messing up on is I want a person who is after my heart, who is willing to do whatever I want them to do. Saul's messed up on this. David's been doing it. David's been obedient in the heart playing. He's been obedient in serving in the palace. He's been obedient, 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 obedient. He's been obedient into going to live in enemy territory. He's been, he's been obedient of not killing Saul. It's continued obedience. Jeremiah 17, verses 7 through 8 says this. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. Three things are listed there as blessed. Blessed are those who trust and who have made their hope and confidence in him. Everyone say hope, hope. confidence, and trust. Then it describes them in verse 8. They are trees, they are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. He says, blessings flow from putting three things in me no matter what. Hope, confidence, and trust. And when you put that level of hope, confidence, and trust in him, we find this ability that we're able to do whatever he wants. Even when it seems like it may not be fruitful when he asks us to do something. Because let's be honest, there are some things that God asks for us sometimes that seems like it's not going to benefit us well in the meantime. We go through these seasons where we know that God has called us to do this, and it just does not make sense why that is the next step. Because sometimes the next step seems like a step back. Sometimes the next step seems like you're walking totally out of your purpose. And God says, my ways are higher than yours. My thoughts are higher than yours. I'm going to call you to do things you don't understand. And the only way you're going to be able to walk in things that you do not understand is you've got to trust me, you've got to be confident in me, and you've got to put your hope in me. You've got to put these things in me. 
And the scripture says that these trees, when they're planted, they're not bothered by the heat. And they're not worried by long months of drought. In other words, when you put hope, confidence, and trust in God, when the heat comes of life, you're not moved by it. When you go through seasons of drought, you're not moved by it. And I don't know about you, but I experience seasons of drought, it seems like, all the time. Anybody ever experienced a season of drought? You feel like nothing's coming, no sustenance is coming, no supply is coming, the rain's not coming. You feel like nothing is being poured into you. And, we're, and we go through these times where we start to not trust God. Because in seasons of drought, it seems like the plant starts to die. It seems like the leaves start to wither up. But this scripture says, when we are planted in hope, confidence, and trust, it don't matter how hot it gets, and it don't matter how long you have not been poured into, you won't stop producing fruit. The only purpose you have in life is one thing. Produce fruit. Everyone say produce fruit. I was speaking at the recovery center today, and that's what I've taught on actually, about the parable of the fig tree when God says, I, I, I put this fig tree in the garden, and, 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 and it, it wasn't producing fruit. And then the, the, the vineyard owner came and, and said, I, I'm going to cut this fig tree down because it's not producing fruit. It's taking up ground. It's taking up space. And, and, and the gardener comes and says, Father, give me one chance to, 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 to just kind of fertilize this and water this tree. Give me one chance so I can, so I can see some fruit. And he spares the fig tree. He spares it because the point of you on this earth is one thing, produce fruit. And the Father in his wrath says, if you're not producing fruit, you're wasting space and I've got to cut you out. But then Jesus says, Father, let me work with them a little bit more. Let me fertilize them. Let me put some water into them. Let me die on a cross for them. Let me give my life for them because I still see potential in fruit. The only purpose you have is to produce fruit. That's the only purpose. Produce fruit. And this says that a tree that is planted along a riverbank in hope, confidence, and trust, even when you're dried up, even when the heat's coming, and even when it seems like you're never getting added into, you're going to produce. So, if that scripture just told me, I'll always produce when I have my hope, confidence, and trust in him. If I'm in a season when I'm not producing fruit, that can only mean one thing. Your hope, confidence, and trust has wavered. Because it does not matter what's added into you. That is not the qualifier of producing fruit. Your water and your fertilizer, and what you need to produce is three things. Hope, confidence, and trust. And that's hard. Because it's hard to trust God when it seems like everything you know to be yours is taken away. It's hard to trust God when it seems like everything that you've been working for in a moment is seized. It's hard to trust God when in a moment a loved one is taken it's hard to trust God when in a moment all your financial planning just vanishes. But if I put my hope and my confidence and my trust in him, I'm going to produce fruit. Where Saul is, is he has wavered from putting his hope and his confidence and his trust in God. God says, kill all the Amalekites. He doesn't. God says, do this. God says, do that. And Saul kept being disobedient. And over the course of the 20 years, a couple weeks ago, we read that Saul had so wavered in his hope, his confidence, and his trust that he ends up seeking a medium to find out what's going on with his life. It's, it's so far gone that Saul himself actually issued out a, a decree that mediums were not allowed to be in the kingdom. He breaks his own law because he has lost total hope, total confidence, and total trust in the Lord as God. And we do that so many times. God doesn't come through, so we look at all these other sources, and you wonder why you're not producing. 
We try to find sustenance in all these other things. And you wonder why your fruit's not growing. Because your fruit can only go out of one thing. I put my hope, my confidence, and my trust in him. Even when the heat comes. Even when the barren place comes. Even when I go through a season where it seems like everything's being taken away. I trust him. And of the 40 years of his reign, he spends more than half of his life seated in a root of disobedience. And God is just too just to allow him to stay in that role. So we come to this last chapter of 1 Samuel, and we see the fruit of Saul's disobedience. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 31. Is this okay so far? Okay. Verse 1, Now the Philistines attacked Israel, and the men of Israel fled before them. Many were slaughtered on the slopes of Mount Geboah. The Philistines closed in on Saul and his sons, and they killed three of his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Nakashua. I think that's how you say it. Sounded good? I'm, I, I, I studied the language. Verse 3. The fighting grew very fierce around Saul. The Philistine archers caught up with him and mooded him severely. The Philistines, I want to paint a picture for you. The Philistines were attacking, and they had all these archers. There's probably thousands of them. And they all started drawing back their bows and arrows and started shooting into the air. And all of a sudden, King Saul has come to this place out of disobedience, 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 no trust, no confidence, no hope that he finds himself in the midst of this battle and an arrow comes and wounds him severely. And his three sons, Jonathan and the other two, <laughs> were killed. Now, if you remember Jonathan... Jonathan was David's best friend. Jonathan made sure that David was going to be safe and got out of the kingdom. So this great dude, Jonathan, he was actually like honoring his father by fighting a battle that he knew was unjust. And Jonathan's dead. And his brothers are dead. The sons of the king have gone. And now Saul is wounded severely. So in verse 4 it says, Saul groaned to his armor bearer. Take your sword and kill me before these pagan Philistines come to run me through and taunt me and torture me. But his armor bearer was afraid and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and he fell on it. Look at how afraid Saul is. He was so scared of, his, uh, uh, of, of this army, of the enemy, that he would rather take his own life than become a prisoner of the enemy. He would rather take his own life than being taunted. Saul could not produce confidence in God because God was no longer the covering he was familiar with. He started looking to all these other sources and the only sources that Saul started to depend on was himself. He depended on himself so much that in a moment of despair, when he is pierced by an arrow, Saul doesn't call out to his God and say, save me. He calls to his armor bearer and says, finish me. He was so scared. He had such a level of no confidence that the last thing on his mind was calling out to his God that appointed him as the king. He called out to everything else. And in the end, he depended on himself and fell on his own sword. And look where it got him, depending on himself. Not a fruitful king, but a dead one. And there are so many of us that try to take things into our own hands. When God has written us this beautiful, beautiful letter, this love letter, this, this book, saying, if you will just obey my commands, I'll bless you beyond your ability to hold it. But for some reason, we can't put our hope, our confidence, and our trust in this. And even beyond this, we can't even put our hope and our confidence and trust in the still small voice that resides in you as a child of God. We can't do it. And we wonder why we're not seeing fruit. Saul's at a place where he has not done this. He's dead. In Colossians 2, verses 7 through 9, it says this. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. 
Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that came from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of the world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. I want to break this down for you. This just said, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that came from human thinking. We try to reason so much when the answers are all right here in his word. And he says, you put so much confidence in that that you would rather listen to the world than rather than from Christ. And in Christ lives the fullness of God in a human body. Now, what is Christ? Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Christ has a meaning. It means the anointed one. Christ is the anointed one. It says, in the anointed one lives the fullness of God in a human body. When Jesus died for us on the cross and rose from the dead, broke the shackles of, of death, hell, and the grave, we were given access to dwell in one thing, to dwell in Christ. Dwelling in Christ means that the way you live is you dwell in the anointing. And the moment you become a child of God, adopted son or daughter into the kingdom of God, the moment you accept him, you become a Christ on the earth. You become anointed. And this word says, in your anointing is the fullness of God in your human body. In other words, when you live in your anointing, your body can contain the fullness of God. And if you are not having the fullness of God, it is not because God hasn't decided to come in you. It's because you haven't lived in the fullness of your anointing. And the reason you're not living in the fullness of your anointing is because you're not putting your hope, your confidence, and your trust in all his ways. And we find ourselves diving into all these different things thinking we can get comfort from that and we can get peace from this. And if I could only get this breakthrough and if I could only get to that place and God says, none of that is what you need to put your hope in. If you put your hope, confidence, and trust in me, all that other stuff is the fruit that grows from you. Because when you put your hope, your confidence, and your trust in me, you'll grow in your anointing. You'll grow in what you were created to do. And when you live in your anointing, you your body can contain the fullness of God, but you won't get that until you're operating in your anointing. Saul had such a promising future when he was anointed as king because he was anointed to be the king. He was fully capable, but he would not do everything that God called him to do. He did it his own way. He sought his own strategy really thinking there was nothing really wrong with what he was doing. And it led to his death. And in verse 5 of 1 Samuel 31, it says, When his armor bearer realized that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword and died beside the king. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and his troops all died together that same day. King Saul's dead. And what's interesting is that all the sons who would take the throne because they were the princes, all died too. And what we'll find out actually in a couple of weeks is there's one more of David's got to deal with. When the Israelites on the other side of the Jezreel Valley and beyond the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their towns and fled. So the Philistines moved in and occupied their towns. The next day, when the Philistines went out to strip the dead, they found the bodies of Saul and his three sons of Nalcoboa. So they cut off Saul's head and stripped him of his armor, and then they proclaimed the good news of Saul's death in their pagan temple and to the people throughout the land of Philistia. They placed his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and they fastened his body to the wall of the city of Bethshon. These dudes were like, they, they were glad he was dead. This is graphic. Verse 11, But when the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, 
All their mighty warriors traveled through the night to Bethshan and took the bodies of Saul and his sons down from the wall. They brought them to Jabesh where they burned the bodies and they took their bones and buried them beneath the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and they fasted for seven days. Now, that's a lot of information and I could have skipped over it, but I wanted to read it because you need to know something about Jabesh. Earlier, before we got into the series, Jabesh was actually a city that Saul helped deliver out of the hands of King Nahash of the Ammonites, and he was honored. Saul actually obeyed God and rescued these people. So when these people heard that an injustice was done to Saul, that he was dead, they said, we're going to honor that man because he rescued us, and we're going to get him out, and we're going to take him back to Jabesh. Well, why did I point that out? That Saul did a great thing. But that good thing did not excuse him from everything else. Because the qualifier was not the good things he did. The qualifier was, is he willing to do everything I ask him to do? Yeah, he did good here, but he didn't do it anywhere else. Saul had proven that he was not going to do everything that God wanted to do. And now we come to a twist in the story where we see some really interesting stuff. Are you all following so far? Is this okay? Okay. And look in 2 Samuel verse 1. I'm getting somewhere with them. I'm just building it up. After the death of Saul, David returned from his victory over the Malachites and spent two days in Ziklag. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's army camp, and he had torn his clothes and put dirt on his head to show that he was in mourning, and he fell to the ground before David in deep respect. Where have you come from, David asked. I escaped from the Israelite camp, the man replied. Well, what happened, David demanded. Tell me how the battle went. The man replied, our entire army fled from the battle. Many of the men are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. How do you know Saul and Jonathan are dead, David demanded of the young man. The man answered, I happened to be on Mount Goboa, and there was Saul leaning on a spear with the enemy chariots and chariots closing in on him. And when he turned and saw me, he cried out for me to come to him. How can I help, I asked him. And he responded, who are you? I'm an Amalekite, I told him. Then he begged him, come over here and put me out of my misery. I'm in terrible pain. I want to die. So I killed him, the Amalekite told David, for I knew he could not live. And then I took his crown and his armband, and I brought them here to you, my Lord. Plot twist. Because we read in the previous chapter that Saul throws himself in the sword because his armor bearer wouldn't kill him. And we read in that chapter that he was dead. The plot twist comes that while Saul is laying on the spear dying, the chariots are closing in on him. And then this dude comes, and Saul is still living. And he says, would you take my life? And he took it. Now remember, David made a decree over this land. No one touch Saul. No one kill him. Because David made a promise. He said, Saul, even though you've done bad to me, even though you've dishonored me, even though you've done nothing great to me, I honor you, and when I take your throne, I'm going to protect you and your family. So when David found out that Saul was dead, he wasn't exactly happy. In verse 11, it says, David and his men tore their clothes in sorrow when they heard the news. They mourned and they wept and they fasted all day for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the Lord's army and the nation of Israel because they had died by the sword that day. Look at the humility in David. The dude Saul's been trying to kill David for up 15 or 20 years. And David doesn't rejoice that Saul's dead. He mourns. Not just Jonathan, but Saul as well. And I wondered, why is it that David chose to grieve over the death of someone who was trying to murder him? Because David saw one thing. David said, I am willing to do everything that the Lord's called me to do. Remember Saul? He did not do everything God called him to do. But David said, I'm going to do everything God's called me to do. And what was he called to do? David was called to serve the king until his reign ended. 
Remember when David was serving King Saul? He would play the harp to soothe the soul when demonic attack came. Every time Saul tried to kill him with a spear, David never tried to kill him back. He, 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 he embraced him with love. David had one call, honor and serve the king. He could have killed Saul twice over this entire series, but he said, no, I'm going to honor and serve the king. All David was called to do was honor the king, and he said, even though he is dishonoring me, I'm not going to worry about what he's doing. I'm going to worry about what God's called me to do. And even though I might want to take revenge, and I might want to end it now, and I am tired of running, and I'm tired of living in the land of the enemy, I'm tired of being in this place of not enough, I'm going to honor him because I don't care how much drought I'm in and I don't care how much heat I'm going through. I'm going to stay in one thing, what God wants me to do. And there are so many of us in these seasons of life where it seems like everything's being taken away and nothing's going right. And no matter how much church you come to, everything's going backwards. No matter how much you tithe, your finances are going down. And no matter how much you pray, it seems like you're not getting breakthrough. It doesn't matter how many times it does not go your way. We've got to be like David and say, despite the heat and despite the drought and despite no blessing and despite nothing going my way, God Whatever you want me to do, I will. And that's what David does. And then in verse 13 it says, David said to the young man who had brought the news, where are you from? And he replied, I'm a foreigner, an Amalekite who lives in your land. Well, why were you not afraid to kill the Lord's anointed one, David asked. And then David said to one of his men, kill him. So the man thrust his sword into the Amalekite and killed him. You've condemned yourself, David said, for you yourself confessed that you killed the Lord's anointed one. And then David composed a funeral song for Saul and Jonathan. And he commanded that it be taught to the people of Judah. It is known as the Song of the Bow. And it's recorded in the book of Jashar. And this is the song. Your pride and joy, O Israel, lies dead on the hills. <laughs> Look at the honor. The dude that has led Israel to defeat, he said, your pride and joy lays on the hills. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen. Don't announce the news in Gath. Don't proclaim it in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice and the pagans will laugh in triumph. Oh, mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fruitful fields producing offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty heroes was defiled. The shield of Saul will no longer be anointed with oil. The bow of Jonathan was powerful, and the sword of Saul did this mighty work. They shed the blood of their enemies and pierced the bodies of mighty heroes. How beloved and gracious were Saul and Jonathan. They were together in life and in death. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. O women of Israel, weep for Saul, for he dressed you in luxurious scarlet clothing and garments decorated with gold. And oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies dead on the hills. How I weep for you, my brother Jonathan. Oh, how much I loved you. Your love for me was deep, deeper than the love of women. 27, oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen, stripped of their weapons, they lie ahead. Why did David say Jonathan's love for him was greater than the love of women? What was David referring to? The thing that caused Saul to hate David. David got the praises of tens of thousands of women. And David said, my friendship with you was worth more than tens of thousands of praises of them. He says, I honor these guys. King Saul's dead. Jonathan's dead. And the one to replace him is mourning. And he honors the man Saul that God saw instead of the man that Saul had become and his best friend Jonathan. And there are so many times where it seems like justice comes and the decrease of someone else. But let's remember one thing. God doesn't see their failure. And God doesn't see the wrongs. God does not label them by the wrongs they've done. God sees the potential in which they could be. When God called us to be sons and daughters, it says in the Bible that God knew us before we were in our mother's womb. He sees you as what he wants you to become. And he's obsessed with it. That's what David saw and saw. He didn't see the man that was trying to kill him. 
He saw the king of Israel. He saw the man that God saw. And as I was praying about this, because it seems like this is where the story ends, God pointed something out to me. I want to read verse 13 one more time, 2 Samuel 1.13. Then David said to the young man who brought the news, where are you from? And he replied, I'm a foreigner and a Malachite who lives in your land. Now let's go back to the story we read 15 weeks ago when we started the series. God gave Saul one direction. It's in 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. Go and completely destroy the entire what? Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. Now I'm sure that didn't make sense. Because if you're like me, I'm thinking, what did the babies do? <laughs> what did the what did the, the the sheep do? What did the goats do? Like spare them. Well, that's what Saul did. Saul disobeyed. He spared the Amalekite king's life, and he kept the best livestock for him to make sure that his people were taken care of. It's a noble thing, but it was still disobedient. What did God say? Destroy the Amalekites and everything they own. But he only destroyed what he thought was poor quality. In verses 10 through 11 and 15, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, I'm sorry that I ever made Saul king. Because he's not been loyal to me, and he has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard that, that he cried out to the Lord all night. What did God say? He refused to obey my commands. Kill the Amalekites. And 20 years later, the very one that was in his life was in fact a part of the tribe that he was called to take out. The people that God told King Saul to kill ended up being the very one that took Saul's life. If Saul had obeyed God 20 years ago, there is so much that could have been avoided. And instead of correcting it and seeking God in that mistake that was so long ago, he kept building his kingdom rather than God's. His pride called the shots, not his his. his, his not his humility. He would not obey every command. And the fact of the matter is, we don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to pick and choose which commands you follow. You don't get to pick and choose if you believe in tithing or not. Your opinion has nothing to do with truth. Your beliefs have nothing to do with truth. Truth is truth. You don't get to choose when you tithe. You don't get to choose who you get to forgive and who you don't. And we do that. I'll forgive them when they. No, no, no. You don't, you don't get that. You're either someone who's going to obey every command of God or not. You don't get to choose who you're going to forgive. You don't get to choose when you get to lie and when you don't get to lie. You don't choose when you get to gossip or when you don't. You don't get to choose when you want to be drunk or when you don't. You don't get to choose when you want to be faithful or when you don't. You don't get to choose that. Truth is truth. The way is the way. And there's some of us that are dealing with consequences now of past disobedience. We've done stuff in our past and we have not taken care of it. Maybe it was yesterday, maybe it was five years ago, maybe it's something in your childhood, but there's so many times where we build up this bitterness toward God and this bitterness in ourselves, or maybe we just haven't dealt with something that has occurred. Because we think, oh, we're covered in grace and mercy. But God says, my grace and mercy does not excuse you coming clean with the past thing. My grace and mercy does one thing. And it's in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9. You must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. And a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. What's the promise that we think he's being slow about? I just wish Jesus would return. He says, no, no, no. The Lord's not being slow as some people think. He's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. 
Everyone asks, why, when is Jesus coming back? Here's the answer. God says, I'm taking my time. Because you've got stuff that you have refused to turn from. You've got stuff that you're bitter about, that you're angry about. You've got sins that you've never came clean with me for. You've had assignments that you have wavered from. And I cannot allow you to move on until you forgive, pick up the assignment, and repent. What is repent? I'm going to turn from this way and go toward that. What is this way? It's the assignment you're meant to carry. And there's so many circumstantial things in life that happen, and we walk away from the assignment. And God says, I've got all the time in the world. Because in your assignment is the fullness of your anointing. And when you live in the fullness of your anointing, the fullness of God can dwell in your body. You want to know why you're in pain? You want to know why you don't have, you want to know why you have stress? You want to know why you have worry? You want to know why you have all these things that are opposite of God? Have you truly repented? I'm going to stop doing things my way. And I'm going to go for his way. I'm going to stop holding a grudge against what was done to me. And I'm going to carry out my assignment. I'm going to ask God for forgiveness of that thing I did. And I'm going to carry out my assignment. What was Saul's fault? He was killed by the assignment that he did not finish. Kill the Amalekites. Saul was so out of control, he said, armor bearer, kill me. Armor bearer said, nope. Saul tries to kill himself. He couldn't even do that. There was only one thing that was going to end Saul, and it was the assignment that he never completed. And there's so many things in life where we think, I'm just going to buy my time, and God's going to have grace. God has mercy on me. He loves me. It'll be okay. No, no, the, the assignment never changes. The call never changes. In Numbers 32, 23, it says, If you fail to keep your word, then you will have sinned against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Saul's sin found him out. What was the sin? He disobeyed God. What was the command? Kill the Amalekites. 20 years later, his sin found him out. And it was the one who killed him. Saul's sin found him. The thing he was disobedient in was his ultimate destruction. God has a will for your life and he wants you to walk in it. He wants you to reign in it. He wants you to be fruitful in it. Even in seasons of drought, even when it seems like you're not getting anywhere, even when it seems like nothing's coming your way, all he wants is for you to produce fruit that gives him glory. And there's so many times we want to know, well, what is it? Like, what is the thing? Because the fact of the matter is we want to know if giving up our earthly treasures will be worth it. Because sometimes God gives you an assignment that you, you've got to leave this behind. Sometimes God gives you the assignment, you've got to cut this friendship. Sometimes God gives you the assignment that you've got to restore a relationship that you're too prideful to restore. Sometimes God gives you an assignment that something was done wrong to you and you've got to forgive them even if they never think they did anything wrong. And we want to say, God, is it going to be worth it? God, you need to tell me what's going to come out of this because if you're telling me to do this, I need to see that the fruit's worth it. That's not how God works. In fact, there's a very popular verse or passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that I think we always put in the context of gifts and the operation of the church. But I want to show you something different in it tonight. 
it says in verse 9, that is what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Pause. You cannot grasp what God's plan for you. You, you, you cannot understand the fullness of what he has created you to be because it's so big that your mind cannot contain it. Think about that. Think about everything you're going through. Everything that God has planned for you, you cannot grasp it. But it was to us in verse 10 that God revealed these things by his spirit. For his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. No one can know God's thoughts except for God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given us. When we tell you these things, we don't use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's word to explain spiritual truths. Now, here's where it gets interesting. But people who are not spiritual cannot receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others because who can know the Lord's thoughts who knows enough to teach them but we understand these things and then they tell them why because we have the mind of Christ Christ they had the mind of the anointed one. You will never see it. You will never see what God has on the other end of obedience if you can't do one thing. Take care of the things that are blocking you from being fully in the anointing, being fully in the mind of Christ. You cannot grasp it. It's not going to make sense to you. And the reason it's not making sense to you is because your mind is not in the fullness of anointing. Because you've got things in your past that you've been disobedient in. He says, you're not going to get this unless your mind is anointed. Unless your mind is in the anointing. And some of you are looking at me blind right now because, like, I don't understand what you're saying. I'm going to speak to you even more plainly. The reason you don't understand what I'm saying is because you've got blocks that you need to deal with in order to get the understanding. It doesn't take more interpretation. This is a very simple message tonight, the flow of repentance. You're not going to understand how to reign in your calling if you've got things that you have not dealt with. Whether it be unforgiveness, whether it be things of the past, whether it be something mommy and daddy did or something a friend did or something someone didn't do, or maybe it's something simple as you know you were called to be obedient in this and you keep saying no. God says, you're not going to understand my mind because you've got something preventing it. Now let's put that in the context of what happened with King Saul. He kept being more disobedient and more disobedient his hope wavered, his confidence wavered, and his trust wavered. Over and over and over. All out of one thing. Kill the Amalekites. And he could not understand why God would have any other way. And his assignment came back and found him. In Proverbs 28, 13, I'll close with this. People who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, 
they'll receive mercy. I told the team tonight, and I never do this hardly, because I usually preach a word and, and release you. But we're about to get into some heavy teaching about how to reign on this earth as sons and daughters of God. To operate the kingdom. I do not want, and God does not want you to end up like Saul. So disobedient from your assignment and so focused off of him that you're completely lost. You're meant to produce fruit and you're meant to reign. You're meant to have victory upon victory. You're meant to produce fruit after fruit. And he says you're never going to be able to do it if you've got these things that you have not dealt with. Sins of the past, sins of the present, assignments that you've run from. And these next few moments, I'm going to pray. We're going to stand. And before I release you, I'm simply going to ask one thing. Let's leave that here tonight after we've taken care of some repentance. God, I realize that I have let you down here and tonight I'm taking a stand. God, I realize I've run from my side. Tonight I'm taking a stand. Can I be real with y'all? We have so much going on in this house. We have Bible studies equipping people. Friday night, we're having trainings of how to operate and give some prophecy and evangelism. We're at recovery centers ministering. We're at the park ministering. I've got plans to raise up pastors in this house, to raise up preachers who can do what I do in a much better fashion. We're building a home campus on Wilmington Island where, from what I understand, we, we, we've got 15 or so coming this week. Why do I tell you all this? Because it's only a handful of us who are getting on board with this stuff. Sure, we're all coming here to worship. But there's a reason you're here. He needs you. You've got a gift that he needs. You've got a mind that he needs. You've got a hand to the plow that he needs. You've got something that this world needs. Don't run from that assignment. Don't run from your purpose. Tonight, let's make a commitment to say, God, I, I'm no longer going to hold this thing in my past. And I'm no longer going to run from this assignment. Tonight, God, I repent from my sins. And I repent from my running. And tonight, I'm turning to what you want. I'm turning to the path that you have called me to go. Perfection does not qualify you to operate on God's behalf. The willingness to do what he wants qualifies you. It's the only qualifier. Amen. So as we stand, I'm going to pray in these next few moments. If this is a time where you say, Kyle, this message has spoken to me, I'm going to, I'm going to ask out of obedience. That I know this is a small altar, but we're going to make the altar this area right here and this aisle. If tonight you're going to say, I've got some repenting to do from past mistakes. I've got some things that I need to forgive. And I've got some assignments that I need to start running from. I simply want to lay hands on you and pray over you. This is a night to change direction. Everyone say change direction. This is a night to change direction and get on the path that flows from repentance.